Are you lacking accountability and structure to find your next? I was. Are you a business leader or retired athlete looking for your next identity? This is the place for you. This is the Business Athlete Performance Lab. Hi, I'm Keith Billis, and this is Live in the Lab. All right. A little bit of weirdness in front of the camera there for anybody who's watching. Because I'm like, hey, where's the button? Where's the button? I can't get it going. How did you go viral on TikTok? You were on America's Got Talent. How much do you get paid to be on AGT? Oh, you didn't get paid. Keith and Steve here in Live in the Lab. You're a great interviewer. I love it. 48 miles, 48 hours. And not just once. You ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> I hit 50 last time, and I'm like, yeah, things are a little different than they were 10 years ago. So trust me, things are to keep. You have no time for the BS that much yeah. of society seems to put on the table. Why is that? Like what you're talking about is real right now. Right? There's just no bullshit here, but it's just real. We brought you in with some Marley. I said, Joseph, let's talk music for a second. You said, well, Keith, oldies, 60s, 70s, and 80s. I've never talked to a sir before. Why are you a sir? In many ways, we're the same story. I came from nothing. <laughs> You came from nothing. I think the old saying goes that if you want a trophy, you climb Everest. If you want respect, you climb K2. I've built an AI myself, and it's pretty fascinating when you can have a conversation with yourself with your own knowledge. Have you done that before? Why are we rushing to make these tools if they're all they're going to do is hurt humanity? Does the world need an Oppenheimer moment with AI? What a fun show. Hey, everybody. You've got Keith Billis here, and I'm live in the lab. Hey, did you know that Jay-Z never writes his lyrics down? Before he goes into the studio, he just rips it off his head. Well, I'm telling you that because I did the same thing. Let me let me let me share with you my process. I sit on down here in the studio, put the old headphones on, open up epidemic sound, throw some tunes on, and start talking. <laughs> just like that. I let I let the words flow from the mouth based on the music. And today, I opened up hip hop. Second tune in the in, in the list. Halloween Clown Circus by DJ Dens the Rooster. So if you're my audience, the old guys like me, retired athlete guys like him, like Dale Weiss, come on. What's your costume today? What are you putting on today? You going as a clown? <laughs> Maybe you're going as the devil. It's funny, people say, your phone number is what? 6666? I'm like, yeah. My phone number ends with four sixes. I'm like, Q to the devil. I got one more six than the devil. How you making out? October 31st today, end of the month. We've been talking for the last week or so about being stuck. Last Friday, we sat down with Dale Weiss. Interview coming up this Friday, dropping this Friday. We're talking about not only being stuck, we're talking about loss of identity. And I'm wondering what Dr. Our guest today, hint, hint. I wonder what Dr. Sarah Lavelle thinks about loss of identity and what she might, the advice she might offer up to our audience. You business guys out there waking up today, waking up today in your 40s, maybe your late 30s, early 50s thinking, whoa, I feel lost. I don't know what to do next. I've been working here for a long time, looking to do something different. Maybe you're Dale, Dale Weiss, since he was five years old. His dream was to do one thing, was to play in the NHL. And he did for 10 years, 13 years as a pro. He wakes up today, lost, lack of identity. What is he gonna be next? He asks himself when he looks in his mirror. I invite you to tune in this Friday to that interview we're dropping with Dale Weiss. We'll get into that conversation with Dr. Sarah Laval a little bit later today. 
Dr. Sarah, she is a clinical psychologist joining us from New York City. We haven't had a clinical psychologist on before. <laughs> I could use one of those. I have used them before. They are spectacular. Oh yeah, dug into the old dug into the old visa a few times in my lifetime to uh, process my my therapy treatments with my clinical psychologist. I can tell you that honestly and vulnerably. Vulnerably. That's the word I'm looking to get out of my mouth today. And I'll tell you, if you're looking to make an investment in yourself, if you're looking to make an investment in yourself, go sit down with a clinical psychologist. Go have a chat. I guarantee you're going to go back. Guarantee it. And if you're at that point in your life right now, you're like, hmm, I don't know what I'm doing next. I need some structure. I need some accountability. I needed those things. I did. I needed accountability. I needed structure. I found a point in my life where I was lost. That's when I became a business athlete. Today, I'm Keith Billis, and I'm the business athlete. And what does that mean to me? Is it means that I have weaved a structure, systems, and accountability into myself, into my life, to ensure, or at least to hope that I can go hiking or tobogganing with my children when I'm 75 or 80 or 90 or 100 years old. It's a longevity game plan for me, the business athlete. Speaking of longevity game plans, why don't we do the old pivot or segue? Hmm. Is that a good pivot or segue? To tomorrow. Tomorrow's November. November 1st. No month. You're thinking no month, Keith? Yes. I'm teasing it today. Tomorrow we're going to talk about what are you saying no to? What are you going to say no to for the rest of the month? You know, the first step to a system or the first step to structure or the first step to your own accountability is saying no before you say yes. Maybe you'll take some time off from having drinks. Maybe you'll say no to peanut butter. Oh. Maybe you'll say no to cheese. I'm on the fence about that one. Maybe you'll say no to saying, nah, I'm going to go on a booze vacation like Clifford Stevens does and take a few weeks off not having any drinks. I'm going to go get my blood work done instead. Hmm. Maybe you'll get on that Peloton sitting in your basement as a clothes rack. Maybe you'll consider what you can say no to instead of what you're always... Instead of what you're always and already saying yes to. We'll talk about the power of saying no with our next guest. And let's pivot there to our next guest. There's the segue I was looking for. Coming up, we're going to invite into the lab. Clinical psychologist, practice owner, co-founder of Be Better Eating. A mindful eating AI. Let's look over here. Let's look over there and invite in Dr. Sarah, Sarah Lavelle. Hello, can you see me and hear me okay? <laughs> and see you and hear you loud and clear, Dr. Sarah. How are you? I'm doing great, but I was just thinking, well, you'd be a great clinical psychologist. <laughs> you, you could add that onto your title. <laughs> All right, so I'm really glad we're recording this, and I hope my children are going to hear this one day, Dr. Sarah, because yesterday I was told I was a visionary. I was uh -huh. told I was a genius, and today I'm being told I can be a clinical psychologist. What the hell am I doing behind the microphone? <laughs> I have no idea, but I mean, maybe the last one is a downgrade. The visionary and the uh, <laughs> super genius sound pretty cool. I'm grateful to have you join me today in the lab. I, I saw you nodding through a lot of the pre-show. Uh, <laughs> I saw you taking it in. I, it, yeah, it's, it's clear to me what I was saying was resonating with you, and, and, and I take what you said to me as a compliment. So oh. maybe, maybe, maybe we're on the right direction with some of the things we're trying to talk about here in the lab to our audience. 
I, I was impressed. I was like, wow, these are the things. I wasn't joking when I said you could be a good clinical psychologist because you really are thinking about it. People think in terms of clinical psychology as curing a mental disorder. But I think so much of it is just, just about who you are right now, who you want to be, and what kind of changes you want to make. And a lot of it is saying no. A lot, in the, a lot is deciding, okay, well, if I'm saying no to this, what is it that I want to be saying yes to? I also thought a lot about what you're saying about identity. And uh, if you want to hear what my nodding was about, I could jump into that or I could uh, let you. I do, but you know what? Yeah. Uh -huh. Let's yeah. do this. So, okay. I want to have the conversation about identity with you, but we're going to do something here. Oh, this is awesome because I really want to do this. So I'm going to ask you to watch something for a one minute and 50 seconds with me. I'm going to bring you back. Okay. Hang tight. Watch All right, this. Okay. Hey, everybody. You got Keith Billis here live in the lab. We're announcing a brand new segment. It's called After the Buzzer, Life After the Game with Dale Weiss. So, who's Dale Weiss? Well, that's a good question. At the moment, I am a 35-year-old father of four. I'm working my way through a, a new adjustment in life. I retired two years ago from hockey. I, I think I'm just trying to find that next stage in life and where I'm going. So we spoke about identity, and we spoke about loss of identity. I was in the NHL for 10, and then professionally I was uh, 13. We're building up a brand new show here. We're looking to speak to retired athletes like yourself. We're looking to speak to business guys who are trying to get to that next stage in life. We invite you guys to join us weekly, to connect, to share Dale's experiences as an athlete whose identity has been as an athlete. Everything in my whole life since I was five years old, I've identified as a hockey player. From the time I was five years old, my only dream was to be a hockey player. And when you talk about identity for me, I, I'll admit I, I don't know what my identity is anymore. Like I said, from five to 33, I was a hockey player, identified as a hockey player. I spoke of myself in my own personal thoughts as Dale Weiss, the hockey player. I, I'm struggling mentally with kind of just letting go of the spotlight a little bit. That feeling that I would get on a Saturday night walking into the Bell Center. You got the cameras on you, you got your sharps. You're just trying to find that feeling and, and, and just trying to find that identity outside of hockey, something I'm really struggling with. That's a lot to unpack. I, I can't imagine the emotion of going from being on stage in front of 20,000 people, putting you on a pedestal, and then it's all gone. Yeah, it, it was. It was for me. And I think that's something maybe I'm, I'm still struggling with and I need to just let go. Dr. Sarah. Well. Thoughts on that? Oh, I have a lot of thoughts on it. You know, I think it does bring me back to that idea in general of what is identity. You know, and I was I was just kind of a brainstorming in my own mind. Um, have you seen the show The Crowded Room? I, I have um, not. I have not. It's a, it's a great show on Apple, but um, it talks about a person with um, DID you know, but more commonly known as split personality disorder, right? And that person had maybe five different personas, right? And when I think of identity, I think something like DID is just a very exaggerated form um, of what we all feel and that we generally all have many different identities that are a little bit more blurred together, right? In some situations, we're the shy person. In some situations, we're the outgoing person. Um, at a business meeting, um, I'm going to be a very business version of myself. And then I get home with my kids and I'm mommy, right? And, you know, a lot of times we do have just a lot of different identities all rolled into one. And maybe not one really is so much, doesn't stand out so much more than the other ones for most of us. But if you've done something really phenomenal in your life, and it's taken so much focus, 
I wonder if it just really stand out so much more than these other identities. And they're under there somewhere. They just haven't really uh, emerged yet, right? Whereas the rest of us, if we're kind of juggling five and one's not more prominent, it might be easier for us to transition. That was kind of my first thought as I was thinking about that. I can relate to the theme myself. Uh, Dr. Okay. Sarah, I, you know, I, I, I identified as somebody who started a business from nothing and, and turned it into something and did quite well with it. And, and then, you know, changed my life, changed my family's life, changed a bunch of other lives around the world. And then, you know, and then one day it's all gone. Right. And it took me a long time to recognize that, that, and it's interesting I don't even know how to, I, I think that's where I relate to Dale on this. When you, when you're mm -hmm. some, you, you, and for me, it's been a learning and maybe shifting ego around, mm -hmm. right? right? Yeah. So where, where ego was caught up in, in a certain part of my identity, like you talked about mm -hmm. somebody having being, a, you know, the, the, being the father, being the teacher, being the coach, being the person at work. Well, it's where you're going to shift your ego around to put, to put your attention, perhaps. Am I making sense? Yeah, but also, yeah, exactly. Like, and does one of those identities stand out so much more to you? And then also thinking, is identity the same as self-worth, right? I mean, there are right. some people who their careers are their identities. Um, mine, mine is, in, in all honesty. Um, I love being a psychologist. I love what I do. I love being inspired. I, I know my career is more of my identity than other people who are just like, no, I just kind of work to get a paycheck, right? Um, but then again, I've known very successful people who are kind of like, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur, but you know what? I'd be fine being a surf instructor if this all falls apart. So I'm not really worried about my business. And that actually helps them excel because um, their, their success isn't part of their identity. And also success is something separate than your career, right? I will tell you that I have felt the pressure of an identity. And I'd say that Dale, oh. I, I will speak for Dale and say probably Dale has his, because has his, well, when you identify as Superman and you get up and look in the mirror as Superman and then it takes some time to recognize that you're only human in front of your children and you may, and you have fallacies and so forth. Right. So it's, uh -huh. so, you know, Justin Breen said it yesterday. He's like, uh, I think it's great when people can accept that they're just human and they're happy doing their things. Right. And, and the world needs those kind of people. Right. Uh, uh -huh. you, you are career driven. I'm career driven. Um, sometimes there's, pr I, there's, pressure to feeling that to be successful to do the next thing do you know what i'm trying to say there's yeah well. but then there's also people who are like you know i you know my job is my identity um my identity is just that i'm the person who can make everybody laugh at a party right, right. um right and i wonder if you know the more successful you are in one way if you don't get touch of those if or if you don't value those other things because you know you get so much external recognition as well Right. And then are we seeing ourselves through the eyes of, I mean, especially somebody who has fame and celebrity, you know, they're knowing that the entire world is looking at them as very successful. And it's hard to sit there and think, hey, being the funny guy at the uh, dinner table is as important or stands out as much as, wow, the whole world is actually looking at my career and my, um, like what I've done and cheering for me and doing this. It's, it's going to be so much bigger because we're internalizing what I, um, the identity that kind of society has created for us. Or well, our Dr. Sarah Dale, Dale speaks about this in our show uh, drop on Friday, uh, okay. at noon central time. He speaks uh, about playing in front of 20,000 people in an arena, people screaming at your name and asking for autographs. Now he's playing old timers hockey on a Friday night with some guys out in rural Manitoba. 
So I can't imagine what that emotional disconnect is, Dr. Sarah, for, for any retired athlete going from up here to you and I. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And is it, is it, do you hang on to that and say, well, I used to be that and I get that my identity from that I'm this person who's retired or do you start to like, um, probably nothing else in your life is ever going to stand out as much, but then could it be a combination of things? Could you like it? Because again, I think there's something about the other things underneath haven't developed as much, right? Mm -hmm. Um, or do you not need as much of an identity? Can you actually be, be less concerned about what my identity is now? And like, okay, well. What is it I want to do today? Mm -hmm. Like maybe I actually want to go on a boat. That seems like fun. And you're actually more able to just be lost in the moment and not think about um, the perception or even yourself's perception. So what are some strategies that you would give to somebody like a retired athlete who's, who's, who's going through this process of thinking about retiring or have retired and their whole identity being over there mm -hmm. what would be a tangible strategy you would say to somebody who would be tuning into this dr sarah to say you know this is something you might want to consider well i would do a lot of reality testing right because if you think about it um a lot of people in this world are pretty happy right mm -hmm. and they haven't reached that level of success and starting to get curious about okay is that um loss of identity taking away from your happiness do you not know how to be happy without that identity, right? And starting to get curious, okay, well, who are the people in my life that I know that are happy? What, what is it that's making them happy? Are they valuing family? Are they valuing these different things? And even um, sometimes I won't do like even guided meditation or like a visualization. Um, could you imagine yourself happy at this stage without ever having that? What kind of experiences might have you had as a child? Is there anything that you could have missed out on? being so focused in this one way that other people got. I mean, I think it's pretty complicated. It's interesting to hear you say that as well. It's as if you predicted some of the things Dale is going to say in again, the upcoming interview, but Dale speaks about him, oh. finding, him finding gratitude as a way to find happiness, right? Just being grateful for what he has, his family, his kids. Um, and perhaps that's the void. It's, that, that they look towards, that, that a retired athlete looks towards. Yeah, yeah. And in the void, right? If you think about, um, so I always love the idea of a, a void in Buddhism, right? The idea of a void isn't, um, they, they talk about the idea of um, the most beautiful sound is the, um, the space between two notes, right? Um, and it, like a void doesn't need to be this thing that feels painful to be empty. It's like, well, actually now for so long, this was filled with this one thing. I never even got to really ask myself, what are all the different things I want to fill it with? And you could start to look at it as, as um, this void as a container and like with curiosity and gratefulness of like, wow, I can make this whatever I want now. And what do I want it to be filled with? What do I want it to look like? What might've been like, what in the past maybe I should have put in there that I didn't have time to put in there in the past. Mm -hmm. I, th I think that's all fair for us to speak of that. But I wonder, Dr. Sarah, if the fear doesn't come from this. Okay. Since I was five years old, I've done one thing. And I'll, it's all that I know how to do. Never mind an identity, but, it, but I, all I've done is play hockey. Yeah. All that I've done is, is, be, is, is become a professional hockey player. 
no accomplishment there. And, <laughs> and now I don't know what to become next. Like, do yeah. I become a, a real estate broker? Am I an investment advisor? How do I become next? You know, and you and I can give every yeah. answer. Go to school, go yeah, to exactly. I think it's that's, gonna, that's probably part of the fear, is it not? It's going to take time, right? And there's yeah. almost something that it feels like it needs to be, you know, are you going to be okay with it being something that feels more mediocre? Or is it going to be fulfilling and feel as meaningful, but in such a different way? So for instance, um, in our practice, we work um, with a lot of actors and actresses, um, but I've happened to work with a lot of um, child actors that, you know, as a child, they were getting so much fame and so much celebrity. You know, they'd walk into school. Everyone's like, I just saw you in this movie. And, and it was so cool. And even getting to the age of like being in their 20s and they could no longer get parts for some reason, right? And that can be a real grieving um, to think about. Like, you know, you get a certain high. You know, you're getting, you know, in some ways it's like um, there has to be something about like the constant dopamine hits of oh. being a celebrity or being a famous athlete or, you know, either. And have we not of, seen it? Have we not seen it? Justin Bieber has had his struggles and. and everybody. Right. And the more famous you are, the more polarizing you are, too. Right? Yes. I mean, course. there's nobody, you know, how few people in the world do people universally love? Generally, the more loved you are, the more hated you are as well. Right. You you play great that one day. The day you don't, people are kind of angry at you. Right. And so it's like an emotional roller coaster. Um, but what I found is working with child actors, a lot of times they did find something that was meaningful in different ways. For, for instance, um, one person um, decided to be a social worker, which, you know, this isn't as high paid of a job. It's not, um, you know, people don't look at it as glamorous, but they found that fulfillment that they're like, wow, I never really, um, they felt like being able to focus outside of themselves actually almost like healed their childhood um, in some ways what they saw as childhood trauma being child mm -hmm. actor. So we're talking about everybody else's identity. Talking about my identity crisis, Dale's identity crisis. Before we go any further, though, who's Dr. Sarah Lavelle? Who 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 are you? And am I saying your right? Am I saying your name correctly? Yeah, you you got it. You got it down right. Yeah, that's great. Um, so who are who you? Who, who's so so somebody listening right now? One of my one of my audience members, a guy going, who the hell is she? <laughs> um, so my, do you want to know about my identity or kind of an overview of um, you know, what I do in life? Uh, yeah. Your audience comfort. Who who are you? Speak yeah, about you know, you're, you're just met everybody around the coffee shop here, and you're standing up in front of the room, and you're saying, "Hey, I'm Dr. Sarah. I'm a little bit of an expert in this. This is what I've accomplished. I'm, I, I enjoy having this." And let, let's let's introduce yeah, you. Yeah. So I mean, I guess maybe I'll talk about kind of uh, my personal life quickly and who awesome. I am in that regard, and then I'll kind of jump into what I do. So yeah. uh, I always say, you know, I'm a, I'm a twin mom. I have my uh, six-year-old twins, a boy and a girl. Um, their names are Miguel and Luga um, because my husband is from Denmark. Mm. Um, we're both avid travelers. We're very different from each other. Um, he's on like a consulting side, very pragmatic. I'm more the creative, the business owner. Um, I do my thing. You know, we um, both work remotely a lot of the time. We could be wherever we want. Um, so in a nutshell, you know, a lot of my life is like, you know, that is our identity as a family, um, being this you know, bilingual, traveling, this is who we are family, right? Um, on the personal side, I think I'm seen very different. You know, I'm, I'm Dr. Sarah. Um, I own my practice in New York City. I have my eight therapists that all work for me. Um, we're opening a second practice 
um, to focus more specialized in trauma. Um, so we're, you know, we're, we're expanding and we're growing. Um, I'm very passionate about what I do in my practice because we're not just clinical psychologists, but we do things like hypnotherapy, mindfulness, EMDR, um, things that um, are a little bit more outside the box. And yet we're research-based, we're clinical, we all have doctorates, we do those things. Um, my other really big exciting project that I'm doing right now, which is completely separate from my um, therapy practices, is I have a separate co-founder. And um, since I've worked with eating disorders for the last 17 years, we are launching what I consider to be kind of like AI meets headspace for emotional eating. So you can talk to this all day. Um, it talks as if I was talking in a therapy session. Instead of saying, hey, you know, you should eat these many calories, you should do this, you should do that, which I don't think is really anybody's problem if they're struggling with food. It's helping people identify, am I eating right now because I'm hungry? Or am I eating for some other reason? What can I do instead? Gradually learn your, your patterns. So then instead of going on a diet that you're going to go off, you're rewiring your brain to eat in a way that makes you feel good. So in a nutshell, um, I'm, you know, mother, wife, uh, not to mention uh, my, my little dog, <laughs> long Dexter, um, business owner, and a completely different realm than I'm launching it to right now with the AI. What drew you to AI? Well, it was very specific, actually. Um, I had a friend at the time who was going through a really bad breakup. He was young. He was really embarrassed to talk about how much he was struggling. And I had this moment remembering speaking to him. And he was showing me this, um, back then it wasn't AI, it was a, a chatbot. And it was called MEND. And he said something to me at the time that just really stuck with me. And he said, I don't feel comfortable talking to anybody in real life, not even a therapist. I don't, I worry about bugging my friends all the time. But what I like about this is that it feels real, but it also feels like it's not real. I don't have to be embarrassed talking to it. I don't have to be embarrassed if I'm um, talking too much and I can chat with it all day. Um, and working with eating disorders where what you'll find is the more rapport you have with your patients, the more they don't want to tell you what they're really eating. I was thinking, wow, would this be so great for my patients? They only see me once a week for 45 minutes. They have something with them at all times in the moment that they might not be embarrassed talking to um, that could help them sort out why they're eating in this way and what's going on for them. And then we could process together once a week. But in that moment when they're like, you know, I really feel like binging on potato chips and then donuts and then pizza and then doing these things to kind of numb themselves, something saying, hey, stop, what's going on? Can we talk about this? Um, it was kind of like this aha moment. You said something that struck me. Okay. Something along the lines of the, the closer they are to you, the more rapport they have with you. Mm -hmm. Unless they want to share with you. Yes. And it's, that is it's guilt that, that I've never considered that. So it's like, because the, mm -hmm. so I just want to kind of just think this out loud. Like I always do yeah. when I'm by myself. Mm -hmm. So the closer, so if I'm hired you as my, as my therapist mm -hmm. for my eating disorder, the closer that I get to you, I'm more reluctant to share with you because the more I feel like I'm going to disappoint you and let you down. Absolutely. Absolutely. The more real I am, the most you'll get out of anybody like in, 
the most important session of any therapy is the first session because they are free telling you because they're not sure if they're ever going to want to see you again. And they feel like they might just cancel after that. So they kind of put it all on the line. After that, no matter what you do, they're afraid that you're going to judge them. Or they're afraid of even saying things out loud. Sometimes it's not even about you. It's more having to say, I ate this and then that and then that and then that. It's embarrassing. Yeah, and I, I haven't considered that before, but it is so true. And, and it actually emphasizes why I, so I use GPT-4 as, on my action button on my iPhone. Uh-huh. So, uh, so when I, and I talk to it, so I oh. talk to it all day. I talk to it, take notes, converse with it. Cause I'm always, it, instead of making notes that, that are sitting static somewhere, I'm like, well, why wouldn't yeah. I talk to a superhuman and have a feedback and then have it somewhere where I can go deal with it later. And it's only getting smarter. So to any, anybody who's thinking, well, why would you be using that thing? Well, because it's getting smarter every day. So it's pretty rudimentary today in my point of view. Can you only think about five years from now? So but back to you using it. So, so you heard this story with your friend. Mm-hmm. The aha moment was, okay, well, if I can recreate myself as an AI, my philosophies, et cetera, et cetera, support people that have this need, let's do it. Mm-hmm. Am I correct? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much that. Let's do it. Let's make this happen. You saw at the pre-roll, I made an AI-generated version of myself to talk to myself, and that was a fascinating thing. So have you, have you talked to your own AI? I talk to my own AI all the time. I mean, it's it's interesting too because it's um you know just getting into technology a little bit. It's um mm-hmm. you know there's ChatGPT four and it learns to talk more like you on its own. Mm-hmm. However, ours has a separate vector database, mm-hmm. which means that you know we're you know we've loaded every blog I've ever written into it, every podcast I've ever done, kind of everything I've said. So it's really like learning to pull from like my knowledge source. So when I ask it questions, I'm shocked. I'm like, oh, that really does sound like me. Oh, do I sound like that? (laughs) (laughs) So the obvious question is to say, will AI replace therapy? Is the less obvious question what's going to happen with therapy in five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Well, I have so many thoughts on that. Um, You know, will it replace therapy? I actually don't think so. Um, And for a very important reason. So I feel firmly that there's positive negatives about AI and there's positives and negatives about being a human. I mean, as a therapist, again, I can't be there at all times. Um, you may be embarrassed to talk in front of me. Um, you know, that rapport creates a chasm. Um, and however, so if you think about something like relational therapy, um, which mm-hmm. is what I do, there is something about having to push yourself to be embarrassed in front of a human being. And part of the therapy is that you're modeling what the real world is like for them. So if they can be honest with me about what they're eating, they might be um, able to be honest with their husbands about what they're doing. They might be able to open up to their friends about what they're doing. Um, And that's not really replaceable because the vulnerability is a good thing and a bad thing within AI and therapy, right? I actually think it's good that there's no vulnerability with the AI because you get to, it's almost like you get to practice telling your therapist during the week and then it's easier to tell them. But then once you tell your therapist, it's easier than to tell your husband and your friends and um, to interact. Do I think it could cut down on the sessions? Um, Absolutely. Um, I think, and then I think AI is going that way for a variety of reasons is um, each therapist might be able to see more patients because you might be able to see them every other week instead of every week, or it could even be a monthly check-in. Um, 
and you could look at your data on the AI during these sessions um, and help them make sense of them. Hey, you know, that day you were talking about that thing. What was going on? Let's elaborate on this. Um, so I don't see it replacing. I see them very much supplementing each other in, I think, when done appropriately and ethically, um, a great way. I said this to our guest last week, Kurt Stein, that guys like Kurt and myself uh, just got a raise here in the last year as AI has become, uh, you know, pro predominantly in, across the world. People that are in our demographic, our wisdom, our experience, our human wisdom yeah. and experience has just gone up because, you know, you can't replace the last 20 years, 30 years of our fallacies and our successes with, with, with the chat GPT. Yep, Absolutely. Uh, I was just talking to our uh, photographer that does headshots for our office, and I asked her, you know, are you, do you have less business? And she said, absolutely not. It's actually the opposite. There's so many AI-generated photos out there. There's kind of a backlash that people want to make sure they're working with a real photographer because people want to see, you know, um, a real person. They want to know that you're not computer-generated. So this is interesting to me because... A, ta a theme on this show that I have brought up a number of times is, are we moving into the world of the Avengers? You know, we have a gentleman who owns who owns satellite infrastructure that can affect wars, right? Mm -hmm. um, governments are unique and different around the world these days. Uh, AI and the machines, the rise of the machines is coming around us. Yet humans are like, why are we building these things if it's going to hurt us? And humans are like, well, no, but I want to hire humans again. And humans are like, yeah, it's good that you have AI tools, but I really want humans. It's hard not to see this competitive imbalance happening over the years where there's this machine versus human. Like really, or this human mindset where, where there used to be Republicans versus Democrats, it's the humans versus the machines. Absolutely. But again, I mean, this fear came out when we had calculators, right? Right. Um, and then it's a calculator the were the first disruptors, right? Yes. And it used to be cheating in school to use a calculator, right? And then disrupts, and then they're teaching kids how to use calculators in school. Um, then you have computers, right? Computers are cheating. And then, then you're using computers in school. I mean, yes, AI could just design a website for me, but chances are I'm actually just going to go to a website designer who better knows how to use the AI tools. And they could, again, serve more, more Absolutely. clients. Right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Right? So, Dr. Sarah, let's pivot from AI. Okay. And let's segue to um, eating disorders, weight loss, but not the obvious. I want to talk more about what we're hearing a lot about in the last, I don't know, 90 days, no, six months, nine months. Ozempic and Wegovir, however you say their name, and, and the impacts on society. More importantly, the impacts culturally. You cannot turn a television show on without questioning, like, are we going back to the 90s? Right? Are we going back, to, going back to the 90s, right? <laughs> I mean, it's the same thing over and over and over. I mean, it's the, um, what's it called? The stuff in the potato chip that made everybody sick. And then you have the fen-fen. Then you have everybody's eating rice crackers. Everybody's, you know, um, the phrase I keep saying over and over is that um, I think a lot of times we treat a mental disorder as if it's a physical disorder. Mm -hmm. right? um, I think... You know, of course, there are people who have very slow metabolisms or people with their thyroid that have a lot of problems. But most people that, you know, of course, I'm biased. Most people that I see that are overweight um, are coming to me for a reason, of course. But a lot is binge eating. And um, if you have a binge eating disorder, um, 
Ozempic, even Ozempic isn't going to really work. It might help a little bit, right? Um, or, you know, they, uh, I just had a conversation with a bariatric clinic and pretty much as long as your BMI is over a certain number, insurance has no problem just covering a major surgery that they cut open your abdomen and um, put a lap band on, right? And yet, uh, I think 40% of people, even after um, gastric bypass surgery, put their weight back on because it's a compulsion. Um, you know, it's, it's if you're addicted to drugs and you, you know, do something that to try to make them like drugs less or like in a, in a medical way, it's, it's just doesn't really help. You really have to address it psychologically. So when we typically, I think society, when society typically thinks about binge eating, it's typically probably uh, female, I'm going to suspect, and typically maybe even a younger, but mostly female. My audience is men, my guys. My guys binge eat. My guys binge yes, eat. They don't they talk about it. Lot. My guys eat binge eat a lot. Talk about as much. No, they don't. No. So help, yeah. help my guys. Help my team. Help my guys that are listening right now going, oh, yes, Keith, fuck, man. I eat the chips. I stand at the counter and I eat the mm -hmm. chip. Or or I, I go dig into the peanut butter jar until my wife said to me, she says, you know, that's really gross. I'm like, oh. <laughs> And like my wife's not attracted to me when I'm standing naked in the kitchen eating, eating peanut butter. Okay, I guess I better change some habits because I didn't like being called gross by my wife. Just it was that it was that in itself which changed a habit for me. I'll tell you, Doctor Sarah. And when it's compulsive like that, I mean, first of all, athletes. I mean, the number of eating disorders within athletes is so um, neglected. Talk um, about however, it. it's it's very it's actually very common. I mean, and there are a lot of things about. Um, athletics that lend itself to eating disorders. Um, and cer even certain sports, it's more prevalent than others, right? Is it a sport where you're supposed to be big and bulky? Or is it a spart sport where you're supposed to be small and wiry, right? And, you know, this day are so supposed to carbo load and are this day. And there is a sense with anything that I think any eating disorder is being systematically taught not to listen to your body's cues. Um, is almost always how it develops, whether it's because you're just drastically trying to lose weight or you're trying to do this. And so there are a lot of athletes that have just lost touch with their hunger cues because it's all about, okay, how am I going to perform the best? Right. And then they get these, you know, they burn a lot of calories at once and then they get, um, you know, are all of a sudden um, sugar imbalances and feeling like they need to binge. They get a high from the binging then they might start restricting the next day and then they'll binge again and then restrict. And so even if it doesn't meet the qualifications for an eating disorder, I see a lot of um, almost mini eating disorders within athletes. Talk this, about hunger cues and the power okay. of the brain around hunger cues. You think you're hungry, you're being told you're hungry, but you're really not hungry. Well, I think it's when people are confusing emotional hunger for physical hunger. Um, so one thing my app does and I do in my therapy sessions is you are helping person get in touch again with their actual physical hunger cues, right? So you could do something called a hunger scale and you have a person practice using it and it'll actually say, okay, well, a one is you feel a little, like you're only paying attention to what your body feels. A one is like, you're so hungry, you're dizzy. Um, you feel weak, right? Um, a three might be, you know, you're pretty hungry um, and you're um, like a little shaky, but not as, bad as one. A five is kind of like, I'm neither hungry or full, you know, seven, you're like getting over 
getting over full eight. And, and when you really walk through this, the first time a person does it, they'll say, but I just feel hungry. And I'll say, okay, well, does it have any of these cues? No, but I just feel like I want chocolate right now. Okay, tell me what you mean you feel you want chocolate right now. Is your stomach grumbling? Is, you know, is it blood sugar? Well, no, I had a bad day and I thought that candy would make me feel happier, right? Well, that's not a hunger cue, right? And so you're doing two things. You're getting people to know what, first of all, know what your physical hunger and satiation cues are. Um, and then also you're working to help them differentiate between psychological hunger and physical hunger. Right? So it's Halloween today. So as you're speaking, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm craving the chocolate upstairs on the counter, right? And so is my audience. My audience is uh, going, yeah, everybody. what is she talking about? It's Halloween today. Of course, I'm going to go binge in the kids' chocolate as my wife is taking the kids out wandering on the street. I'm going to go have a bunch of chocolate too. What are you saying to all the guys right now and, and our audience um, going, okay, tonight's the night. That, that's why I'm calling November. You get, and, and it's ceremonial, right? Like it is. It's the idea of like Halloween, you overstuff yourself. Thanksgiving, yes. you overstuff yourself. <laughs> yes. um, a lot of cultures in Christmas, you you know, and and so um, I, I'm kind of laughing because um, you know, I do do a lot of um hypnotic language in my sessions, and one of the metaphors and kind of like play on words I give people is um around Halloween, coincidentally, because it was the first time I thought of it, and it said, okay. It, everybody wants a sweet sometimes everybody wants a reward but a sweet that makes you feel sick or that makes you feel badly about yourself well that's not really a treat in fact that's more of a trick than a treat mm -hmm. and you know and it's like mm -hmm. the trick or treat, like and you keep playing along with this like trick or treat like and it gets people to start asking themselves wait a minute is this a trick or a treat and maybe it's actually a trick maybe it's not going to make me feel as good as i think it's going to make me feel in fact maybe i'm going to feel badly about myself afterwards and um, a little sick from too much sugar. I have a strategy I use, which is nothing feels as good as fit feels. Yeah, yeah. Right? It, it was kind of it was it was coined from I hate the word, but it was nothing feels as good as skinny feels. And I, just, I, I was going to say I, that I use that word. So that mm -hmm. word part of my lexicon. So it's fit, mm -hmm. right? Well, right. So yeah. I will often again. I'll tell you a secret. Mm -hmm. I, I will I will walk through my cravings in, in it at, at, at the grocery store and I'll look at everything and I'll say, okay, look at it, taste it in my eyes and go, nothing's mm -hmm. going to taste, nothing's going to feel as good as I, as I feel right now because I'm fit right now. And I'll walk yeah. away and I feel satiated. It's bizarre, but it yeah. works. But it's true, right? But, but, but it's a good technique that you're using because it's, um, we are so programmed to think that that's going to make me feel good when a lot of times it doesn't. For the short term, it does, right? We know that. It's like that. Well, uh, actually, we don't. You'd be surprised. Um, people, when you really get into eating disorders, what you'll find is the first few bites of things actually produce dopamine and make you feel good. Anything after satiation actually feels bad. Um, your body stops producing dopamine in response to the taste, and you actually start feeling uncomfortable. But people override that because they think they want to believe it's going to make them feel better or that it's going to make them feel amazing. I did a seven day fast. Okay. It was incredible what I learned from that experience, huh. which was one thing, how we're socially programmed to eat. It's like, yeah. okay, it's five o'clock, seven o'clock, it's time to eat. Mm -hmm. Five o'clock, seven. It's, it was like, and that's just what we do as human beings. And once I learned that, and it was socially, my family was all eating. I'm like, okay, well, I'm not eating you guys. I'm like, well, what do you mean you're not eating? I'm like, no, I don't really feel like I need to eat. I just, 
we're all eating because that's what we're supposed to do. But I'm not really hungry. Yeah. Well, playing as advocate, I think it's a combination of, um, you know, our body keeps track, right? So it's, you know, it's socially learned. But actually, even if you're looking at, um, you know, uh, somebody going through jet lag, what you'll say is people think they need to try to sleep ahead of time. But actually, they suggest changing your meal times ahead of time as you're adjusting to a different culture because your body keeps um, they keep track of your sleep um, based on when you know your how you're regulating your food throughout the day. Mm. So your body does have some input into hey you're used to eating at seven, even if it's not cultural. Your body starts um, producing enzymes to break down food. It's expecting to get food, so it starts to trick you into thinking you're hungry if it's a certain time of day. Yeah, it's 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 food's a fascinating thing, isn't it? Because it affects Absolutely. us all differently. It's a multi-gazillion yeah. dollar business, and we all are looking for the magical pill, aren't we? We are, but it's easy. I always say it's like um, it's easy to give up smoking. It's easy to even give up cocaine. Um, many in many ways because you could live your life without cigarettes. You could live your life without that drug. You could live your life without alcohol, but you need to eat, mm-hmm. and everybody needs to eat. Um, it'd be like saying, you know, try to get a person from, you know, uh, drinking all day to just drinking three times a day, right? right. Um, that, that's hard, right? It's easier to just give up alcohol. Dr. Sarah, male loneliness is at an all-time high. Mm-hmm. Uh, mental health problems are at an all-time high. Yeah. Talk about the two of them. Male problems specifically? Yeah, um, ma- ma- male loneliness. Like we, we know that as men, are, like there's, there's never been a, a bigger loneliness problem around men in the United States and North America than there ever has been. It seems like as men age, they become lonelier than ever, disconnected as ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet we have, uh, you know, more mental health problems around society. So, so speaking yeah. to our audience, how, how do they relate to each other when it comes to male loneliness, men loneliness, not feeling connected to community? Uh, feeling disconnected, stuck, looking for purpose, right? And then refusing to accept that there's some mental, emotional challenges they might want to address. Well, I, I have a lot to say on the issue. Um, I used to teach, um, I used to be a professor of psychology of sex and gender. Um, and it really gave me a lot of perspective into men. Um, so people think about, oh, women are just naturally more emotional. But, you know, from a very young age, if a little girl cries, she's likely to be comforted. If a little boy cries, he's likely to be told, toughen up, um, don't cry. Right? That was me. Yeah, yeah. And so they are systematically told to ignore their emotions, right? So think about this. Um, who's more upset over a breakup, men or women? Well, I think, I think stereotypically we think it's women. Stereotypically, yeah. However... Men have about 10 times the suicide rate um, as women do after a breakup. They're 10 times more likely to lose their job. Um, I'm, I don't know if it's exactly 10, but it's sure. more. Yeah. Um, they are more likely to suffer from depression. They, you know, it, it affects them more. And yet, because they've been told at a young age, don't talk about their emotions, men's friendships are very different than women's friendships. If you ask a woman, hey, if you broke up with your um, boyfriend, how many of your friends do you think would know within the next day? It would probably be quite a few. If you ask um, a stereotypical male going, getting out of a relationship, 
how many of your friends knew within the next day that you broke up? Um, it, a lot of times it'd be zero. Um, so they don't create these um, social nets for outlets. And even if they did tell their friends, they don't have the same way of communicating it with other people. It's also harder for men to get into therapy. Um, something like depression. Um, there's an argument that the way we even put depression in the DSM, the symptoms are kind of represent how women experience with depression, not how men do, right? When we think of depression, we think of crying, um, not going to work, um, kind of moping around, just being sad, being weepy, like all these things. And that is how women experience depression, right? Men will, men, when they're depressed, they are irritable. They are drinking more. They're still going to work. They're still functioning. They're not crying, but everything annoys them. Women are internalizers. So um, I'm horrible. Nobody likes me. Everything's my fault, right? Men, when they have depression, are externalizers. Everybody's horrible. Everything, everybody else's fault. And um, uh, like nobody could do anything right, right? So who's more likely to go to therapy? The person who feels like everything's their fault or the person who thinks that everything is everybody else's fault? They can't identify that there's something going on with them. And how can they when they've been told from a young age, don't cry, don't show your feelings, and if you do, your other male friends might make fun of you, right? It doesn't really motivate men to want to go and talk about their th feelings in therapy or open up to their friends. Um, I think, you know, mental illness is an all-time high for a number of reasons. Um, I, think, I think there's more identifying that men are depressed than there used to be. I think there's more men being able to talk about being lonely than there used to be. Um, I don't know for sure that's um, more of a bias of just more talking about it than it used to be. Well, that's what I wonder as well. Generationally, s some of the people that were not speaking about this are, are passing and those generations are moving on where my 16-year-old son, we talk all the time. I'm like, let's talk. Yeah. Like, let's just talk. Like there's no, and you yeah. know, he's a recent captain of his hockey team. And I'm like, let's just talk, keep talking, right? You can, you can. I don't want to say you can cure everything with communication, but you can sure achieve a lot if you communicate. That's what pisses me off with the world these days is that we all got to get into our tunnel and we all got to hear each other's, we can only drink each other's Kool-Aid. And as long yeah. as we're not drinking each other's Kool-Aid, we, we can't seem to have a conversation in society anymore. That just drives me nuts, Dr. Sarah. I know. I, yeah. And with social media and, you know, it, everybody thinks that everybody's doing so great other than them. And yes. yet it's like the world's a horrible place. Is it not a horrible place? Is everybody better than me or is everybody? And then you're posting those same pictures, making everybody think that your life is great. Right. I make a joke that, um, <laughs> that you can tell if a, if a couple is about to get divorced by how many happy photos they're posting on social media. <laughs> oh yeah. I never thought about that, but that's an interesting one. So anybody who wants to, if you're looking for something to do Friday night, just go, just go cruise around tips from Dr. Sarah, cruise Instagram and look for less photos on your friends and the alarm bells are going to go up. I but mean, yeah. it could be happy, you sure, know, for but sure, like for sure. I've seen it a few times people are struggling. So they want to convince themselves and others how happy they are. Right? Dr. Sarah, why? I'm going to ask this. Why do people cheat? 
Is it? Is it? Is oh, it you, you you have this question kind of on. You have this. So sometimes our guests will give us pre things that they can ask okay. about and talk about. And and one of them was, hey, you know, why do people cheat? So it's not my original question, but why do people okay. cheat? Oh, the long answer, short answer. I mean, I uh, I I did write my dissertation on um um people's reactions to infidelity from an evolutionary standpoint. So do we want to go evolutionary? Do we want to go socially? Do we want to talk about people's mental health states, attachment style? Where, where do we want to go with this? What you're saying, there's a lot going on and there's a lot of reasons why people cheat. And yeah. it's not just one dot to the other dot. There's a lot going on. Yeah, but I, well, I can actually start out with evolutionarily because um, it kind of lends itself to modern society. Men and women have historically always cheated. Um, there's a few fun facts about infidelity, right? So, you know, if you look at men and women, women can uh, have really one offspring at one time, right? Men can have as many different offspring at any time as possible. And yet human beings, um, there's something called parental investment theory that, you know, we are one of the few animals that are monogamous, right? Mm -hmm. It's, um, you know, it, compared to say dogs, or, you know, other animals, they can have, you know, like, they're not sitting there saying, hey, not until I have a ring on my finger, <laughs> right? It's like most animals are polygamous. Um, human beings, because we can only have one child at a time, um, and because it takes so long for them to be raised, we uh, have evolved to be more likely to be in partner pairs. Um, however, what you'll find is Evolutionarily, women will cheat for greater resources. So they'll cheat with one kind of higher um, male in a tribe, um, whereas men will cheat um, with greater numbers of um, mm. partners, right? So, you know, our genes are split. They're telling us, you know, it's advantageous to be in a partner pair, to raise young, but then it's also telling us to uh, diversify our genes, right? So just talking in a very basic level, now you see that in society as well, women will tend to go for resources, men will tend to go for variety. Um, and yeah, you know, there's a reason. So do we talk about why people cheat or do we talk about why people stay together? Um, right? So what you'll find is people think that jealousy is a social construct, but jealousy is actually something hardwired in our brains to, depo to um, detect mate poaching. So if you're feeling jealous, you know, yes, sometimes it's an overreaction, but, you know, we, we couldn't survive if we didn't have something in our brain telling us when our partner might take away the resources, right? Um, and that we'd be stranded and, you know, we're hardwired to protect our young. Is jealousy ever healthy in that regard? So, so using your example, mm -hmm. somebody's yeah. alarm bell goes off a little bit. They know it's all safe, but, but, but what you're saying is that I'm predisposed, I'm, I'm pre. I have a predisposition. Yeah, I'm predisposed to have that alarm bell going off. It's just going to happen regardless because I love this human being. Is that what you're saying to me? Yeah, well, it depends. Is, you know, is your, uh, a car alarm is adaptive. However, if that car alarm is mm. set too high, that's not helping you not get broken into. Mm -hmm. um, if it's set too soft, it's, it's not going to help it not bro get broken into. Um, so, you know, that hired, hardwired response is kind of a, a good indicator um as long as you know um it's not overreactive and there are a number of things that can make that jealousy overreactive but then the other thing is um the reactivity in your brain between jealousy and love is very close 
So if you were to cut down, you know, so people can, you know, have polygamous relationships, but what you'll find is once you cut down the jealousy, you actually can't experience as much of that like dopamine high um, from being in love with your partner. Um, or there are some couples who do that and then it's like, but they're kind of like, they'll be jealous and then they'll be in love and then they'll be jealous. So it's, um, and that's too chaotic um, for most people. But the advantage of having, you know, a healthy jealousy and, you know, it's kind of good for couples to be a little jealous every once in a while to stay, uh, to kind of constantly unite that spark. Now being too jealous, absolutely not. But would I say a healthy small amount of jealousy is good for relationships? I think so. Dr. Sarah, we're, we're coming up on our hour together. I clearly could sit here all afternoon and just keep chatting with you. Do you agree? Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I still think you'd be a great therapist. <laughs> Thank you. I, that's very kind of you. Is there anything that you want to throw on the table that my audience should be aware of, should know about? Is there anything you want to plug anybody within the New York area? Uh, this is your time to say, hey, Dr. Sarah, this is what Keith hasn't asked me about, and this is what I want to make sure the audience knows about. Ah, oh, I mean, I think you're right. I could just talk and talk about all these things. I found it a really interesting conversation. Um, it's made me think. Um, yeah, I guess the thing that think? I want... What's, what's, what's made you think? Uh, yeah, everything today. I mean, about identity, loss of identity, or are we one unified person? Why do we cheat? Where I think AI is going? Um, it creates nuance to how I'm thinking mm -hmm. about it, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of like what people should know, I am really excited about my app. Um, it's not launched yet. It's in beta, um, but that will be coming out. We're really hoping for January. Um, I'd love people to um, sign up for it when it comes out or even just sign up to be on our um, newsletter through our website now so that they can get notified when it is. Um, just not even because, of course, I want this to grow and I want to be famously successful, but I would love um, the feedback. It's something so different. So that's BIA Better Eating. So BIA stands for Better Eating App. It's also short for Beatrice, um, a name that means the helper. So it's BeaBetterEating.com. Um, I'd love people to sign up for that. Um, be the first to know. Um, reach out to me, say hi. Um, let me know if this sounds great. Let me know if it doesn't. And then anybody in the New York area that actually really um, needs help, um, even when we're not the right therapist, we help people find the right therapist in New York City. Um, so the two companies I have are um, New York Health Hypnosis and Integrative Therapy. And then we're soon going to be launching Soho Integrative EMDR to help people who are um, suffering from trauma. Dr. Sarah, thanks for joining me. Uh, I would love, I would be flattered to have you back again to, to continue love the it. conversation. I think we could uh, continue educating my audience I, I would get a sense that my audience would love to hear more from you. I think that there's a right. lot of guys that uh, are listening to you, um, but not ready to come to terms with what's next, right? Like, I, I will be honest with you. I just didn't wake up one day and say, okay, I got to go see a psychologist. There's a process involved, right? Yeah. So um, to those that are listening to this right now and maybe touching upon some of the things that Dr. Sarah and I talked about, like, you know, eating disorders, binge eating, retired athletes being stuck in life or going through, um, you know, we didn't even talk about this concept of midlife crisis, but just this kind of identity through life. Um, I, I hope you'll hear a lot of the things that, you know, listen to the whole show if, you, if you're dialing in later I'd here. Love yeah. yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, and, and so we'll have Dr. Sarah back. And to my guest, 
Um, Dr. Sarah, I'm going to throw you into the green room for a second while I say goodbye to everybody else. I'll come back to you and say goodbye. So, uh, everybody, thanks for <laughs> Sarah coming in. You just hang out here for a second, and I'll come back to you. I'm going to do that with you. I'm going to do this with myself. And then I think I'm going to go right over here. Boom. Hope you guys enjoyed today's show. I did. Dr. Sarah Lavelle joined us from New York City. Um, timely discussion, frankly, uh, you know, with our upcoming show dropping on Friday with Dale Weiss talking about identity. Um, it's Halloween today. I know I got a whole bowl of chocolates upstairs and now I'm thinking about whether I'm going to eat them or not. Fuck, who am I kidding? Of course I'm going to eat them. Right? So I'll deal with that later. Uh, I'll deal with that in my own mirror. Um, since Dr. Sarah's laughing over here in the green room, I had to put her aside before I admitted that to all of you guys. Uh, I'm Keith Billis. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. I'm a business athlete and I'm here for all of you guys, Monday to Friday, noon central time, Monday to Friday, noon central time streaming on YouTube X today. We dropped into LinkedIn for the, for the hour. We'll see you guys tomorrow post Halloween, November 1st, the start of no month. You got to say no before you can say yes. That's how structure starts. I'm Keith. I'm out of here. Once I find the button again, we're going to go right there. See you guys.